live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Hi and welcome back Rabbi Hirsch. Last week's was a fascinating episode discussing the decision and the terrible conditions of the passage to America. We sort of left off in the middle, I don't know if this is a new episode or not, but we didn't have time to describe about what actually happened when they arrived. It was mostly about the journey. No, that's exactly what we are going to be addressing this week, the immigrants as they arrive. Now, mass immigration would create the richest, most free, least discriminated against group of Jews in the past thousand years of history. But it came at a tremendous cost, a destructive cost to that first generation. They lived very tough lives, unlike the German counterparts who arrived 60 years earlier that we discussed last week. It came at a destructive cost to religion, to family life, and eventually to assimilation a couple of generations down the line. Because the first to leave Russia were those who had the least to lose, those who were not tied to the old country or who needed to leave. They had potentially political views that were suspect, or they were facing military conscription, they had debts, they may have been people to whom religion and Kahila didn't matter. There is a quote from one of them who says, I knew I was going to the land of the free, but I was also cognizant of the fact that no one expected or awaited me there. I did not have the slightest idea as to how I was going to make a living. So they were individuals going on their own. And the outcome was that this loneliness created a new set of facts on the ground. One contemporary historian writes that for every customer in the Lower East Side, there are 77 peddlers who wander about hungry, crying out in a hoarse voice, lady, look in the basket. And the factory worker was no better off because they had to work 12 to 15 hours a day uh, with a haste that was never asked of the workers in Europe, pressed up against one another in cellars without fresh air. And uh, for these hours of labor, they would receive $5 a week. If they arrived 15 minutes late, they would lose a half a day's wages. And wages literally were there to keep body and soul together. They were the absolute basic minimum. And these conditions would eventually include 60,000 children who were working full days, primarily in places like the Lower East Side, where people went on to fame eventually, but started out there. You have people like uh, George Burns, uh, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, who all start out in the Lower East Side. And the physical exhaustion that you can imagine was aggravated by Jewish family life coming apart. 
the privacy of the home was invaded by overcrowding. There were 40,000 buildings holding 1.3 million people. And because there were so many people who needed a rental and needed accommodation, so others were easily thrown out if they were behind on the rent. One immigrant recalls that when she came home from school, she sometimes didn't know where they lived anymore and the neighbours had to give her the new address. And they would sleep in, in one row. Sometimes they slept in shifts or on uh, orange crates. They had shared outdoor bathrooms. Uh, there was work being brought into this tiny apartment to finish the quotas. And there was a, a greater density by 1900 than there was in Bombay. I don't know if any of the listeners have ever taken a tour of the Tenement Museum, but uh, it gives you some sense of the size. And the saying went that the new world stands on three things, money and money and more money. All the people of this country worship the golden calf. And ironically, the worst employers were these German Jews. They owned 225 out of 240 factories. They'd climbed up the ladder. They were now the middle class. And there was a diversity of talents, shall we put it, shown by some of the immigrants. A guy called Isaac Zucker, who headed a Jewish arson ring and ended his career with a 36-year sentence in jail. Uh, there's another, Harry Jablinski, who ran a school for young pickpockets and at one time employed 15 apprentices. There was a woman called Mother Mandelbaum who became a leading New York fence and she disposed of more than $5 million worth of stolen property from her headquarters in Clinton Street in Lower East Side. And she employed the legal talents of a firm called Howe and Hummel, I think, for an annual $5,000 retainer, bearing in mind that at the time the average wage was $500 a year. And she set herself up in the, in the criminal world. However, she had a sort of Robin Hood quality to her because she maintained a school in Grand Street, which was not far from police headquarters. She branched out. She offered advanced courses in burglary, safe blowing, and postgraduates got uh, um, training in blackmail, confidence schemes. In fact, her institutions became so famous that the young son of a well-known police official applied and uh, she had to, I don't know, curtail or close it down. <laughs> so, you know, you did have some diversity probably one of the oddest being refused to school ever. Right, yes, reason not given. However, beyond the economics and the living conditions, perhaps the most critical change that needs to be understood was who they were, how they saw themselves. In Europe, they were almost not responsible for how their lives played itself out. They lived within the framework of police regulations of religion, of family, of neighbours, every step of the way. Their road of life may have been narrow, but they couldn't get lost. And self-definitions of a Jew never existed in Russia. 
The goyim told you you were a Jew, and they never let you forget it. Besides which, you know, the biology was obvious. Who wasn't married to a Jew? Who didn't live as a Jew at some level? But in America, um, young Jews were hurled into a new world. There was no police in the Russian sense, no community, no ghetto walls, every man for himself. You can buy and sell everything for money. The aim of life was amusement and, you know, any sort of conscience or sense of honor falls by the wayside. In America, especially in New York, let's say, so a young man gets married, but three or four years later he has a few children who are a nuisance. His wife has become sick, his wages are too low if he's supporting a family to allow him any fun. There are plenty of young girls out there. And anyway, the free thinkers have assured him that there is no God and no punishment in the afterlife. So one day he just leaves home, he packs up and forgets to come back and becomes another missing husband. And this isn't an anomaly. This occurred time and time again. And as for the next generation, the minds of the children were being poisoned against their parents, especially by the ridicule of the gutter against religion. It wasn't simply that religion was unfashionable. It was it was openly ridiculed, and everyone assumed that it was simply a matter of one more generation until this religion will disappear altogether. There's a famous um, story of Rabbi Elimeir Bloch, Rosh Hashiva of Tells, in America, who originally was in Lithuania, and I'm skipping forward because this actually this took place 50 years later in, in 1948 in the Lower East Side, and he goes into a store, a mechusvarim, selling svarim, and he asks to buy a ktsois, and the store owner gets him one from the back, and he charges him five dollars. This is five dollars for a ktsois. So the store owner says to him, this is the last ktsois they will ever sell in America. And Elliamer said to him, I guarantee you that not only will they learn the ktsois in America, they will print it. And as he said about himself, ich bin gewen der Mishugana. Because I, I was crazy for assuming that America had any place to learn this type of safer. Well, almost an avoir, considering the circumstances. Yeah. I keep hearing that that time of history in America, it's really the Chilo Shabbos, the non-observance of Shabbos that was most mentioned, most talked about. Yes. Put it this way. The most eye-opening aspect of the lives of the new immigrants was to do with religion, but not just personal observance. As you say, many people are aware that there was a sudden drop in observance for which there were various reasons, and in a way it's difficult to fault them. Firstly, Sunday trading laws, which forbade opening of shops on that day, meant that if you were self-employed and you kept Shabbos, you would be closed two out of seven days and you're on the edge of starvation. And if you were employed, you'd lose your job if you didn't come in on Saturday you know, don't bother coming back on Monday. Wasn't this the same in England post-war? No, no, it was not. And there was obviously no social welfare in the country. There was no community 
that you belong to in America, really. So there's no shame if you drop out of religion and no one keeping you within the fold. And it was a new country. It was an unfamiliar language, culture. And that meant that people had, firstly, few employment possibilities, so no room to maneuver. You take this job or you have no job. And the fact that you were on your own. So all of these contributed to the, the breaking of Shabbos. And many made an uneasy peace with the very trying financial straits that they were in. In fact, as is quite known, there were many Shabbos minyanim that prayed very early on a Shabbos morning so people could pray and then put in a full day's work. So all this is, is somewhat known. Less known is the absolute struggle ideologically between those who were religious and those who were, let's call them socialist. They were very different groups of identity. Who were the religious leaders at that time? Well, when you talk about leadership, there aren't any real leaders, never mind in the religious Jewish world, in the Jewish world at all. From the rabbinic perspective, rabbis were few, they were ignored, they were struggling financially themselves. I mean, even in the 1930s, when Ramesha Feinstein came over, you know, what sort of position was he offered? America made religion a, a private, not a public matter, and sent religious leadership into a tailspin. But there was no communal infrastructure at all. It is the biggest difference between immigration to England and America. And one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier that England was a different story, because there was at least a communal setup, and therefore the United Kingdom managed to keep hold of tradition to a much greater percentage of people. But having said that, the authority at which was regarded as the almost the final word on a matter were the Jewish newspapers, one in particular which played a large role called the Forwards, the Forward, as it would be known today, as there is still a website in English of today, but at the time it was socialist, completely non-religious, and only in Yiddish. <laughs> um, so, you know, it starts in 1897. By the 1920s, it had a quarter of a million subscribers. There is a wonderful write-up in it about Queen Elizabeth II when she got married, all in Yiddish, <laughs> just, you know, because it was still going in Yiddish at the time after the Second World War. But clearly at that moment, everybody spoke Yiddish when they came over on the ship from Eastern Europe. The editor was a guy called uh, Abraham Kahn, a socialist, obviously, and he ran columns in his newspaper for debate and he would allow anyone press space. It was actually quite sort of open minded. And in particular, starting in 1904, 1905, he ran a series of debates on various issues. And even though it was the foremost secular socialist Yiddish newspaper, as were, one would have assumed, most of the readership, the debates that focused on religion sparked the most responses. And, you know, they carried on in the papers for more time than any other features. So there was one that ran from September to November 1904, 80 letters altogether. And then the next year, there was one on what was called a Shabbos Shaila. 
<laughs> you know, Shabbos question, which got 50 letters. And it was addressing the topic of Shabbos from the standpoint of the free-thinking, in other words, non-religious Jewish immigrant who encounters religious Jews and observes their Shabbos dilemmas almost as an outsider. This is not the religious Jew writing about the struggle for religion. This is the, the outsider commenting on it. Wow. So you, this Can these still be seen? Are absolutely. They... Yeah, I mean, there, there are books written on this. We'll come to greater detail into what that morphed into because it starts off as these debates. Ended up as the Ated, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. So the, the first question is asked by a from factory worker, a guy called Elio David Weitzman, who is in a factory that makes hats in Newark, New Jersey. And he had asked his free-thinking co-worker on a Friday afternoon, would you help me finish these last six hats so I don't need to break Shabbos? And this free-thinking Jewish comrade, on principle, refused to do it. And the question was put out to the readers of the forwards to resolve the question, who's right, who's wrong? In other words, the, the question was, should a, a free thinker help a religious co-worker finish so that he can leave in time for Shabbos? Or would this voluntary assistance in its direct support of religious behavior constitute a violation of free thought? So, you know, what we have to get our heads around is that a rejection of religion was the most basic element of identity for a free-thinking Jew, and they grappled, therefore, with how to treat the individual. So this guy who was asked by Weizmann to do these six hats for him, so initially he accepts the hats, and then he gives them back. He refuses to do them. And the responses fell into sort of two camps. There were somewhere between 25 and 30% that were named generally the anti-Weizmann camp, who praised this free thinker and condemned religion and religious people. And you have, therefore, the, the other part, 65, 70%, whatever it is, as the pro-Weizmann camp, who argued about the need to distinguish between religion and the religious person. But those who praised the free thinker, they had a virulent distaste for religion. There was a guy called uh, Duber Gerstein who said that by refusing or wrote that by refusing to help the religious man, this freethinker is heroically upholding his convictions and battling the darkness of religion. And this fervency, this almost fanaticism, you know, this frumkite not to be from, you know, you see it in various of the letters, suggested a strong belief in the importance of fighting religion, because religion is a force that needs to be checked. And, you know, you have letters where the anti-Weizmann camp write that this Frum guy was a hypocrite. He should have stood up for his beliefs for Shabbos and lost his job. And, you know, one of them wrote that, you know, tolerance is a wonderful thing, but it's, it's got to have its limits. They didn't 
view the religious guy as a fellow Jew. You know, they say blood is thicker than water, but clearly ideology is thicker than blood. <laughs> and the extent to which the divide existed between these two camps, based admittedly on previous decades of hostility in Russia, was played out in the New World, and it's quite shocking. Religion was to be shunned because it was dangerous. It wasn't just old-fashioned or illogical or things we don't have to do anymore. It didn't come out of, you know, an ignorance of what religion is about, but a determined pursuit of breaking from the past. So that was one debate. And there was another one which examined the religious practices of socialists. They were members of the Workmen's Circle, which was a completely socialist uh, group. And they'd been caught attending Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur services. So uh, the general secretary of the Workmen's Circle, a guy by the name of Leo Rosenzweig, was shocked when he observed people in his workman circle joining those sort of synagogue worshippers en route to shul on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, you know, even those who clearly never went, never stepped foot in a synagogue through the year, they went at this time. And, and he's shocked. Now, once again, just to remember, all of the debates are taking place in Yiddish, <laughs> right? Because that's what they all speak. So here the debate is more nuanced because many readers wrote that they don't believe in religion and they don't believe in God, but there's a but. In one letter, for instance, a guy was asked by his religious mother to say Kaddish. So, you know, he, he says, I'm going to mourn her. So it's not a question that I won't miss her, etc. But I'm betraying the new religion I now believe in by saying Kaddish the adherence to my new religion. And he says, do we have the authority to pusken the din? And that's how he phrases it. Wow. All of these words fall into Yiddish. I mean, the tragedy has also had these people asked a regular rov, had there been one, then many people would have, I guess, kept Mu'aloch as a result. They were asking it on an open forum full of people who are anti-religion just because there was no authority. I don't know if a rabbi or anybody really would have gotten through to them. I'm not sure if anybody changed their views or their mind through this debate in the newspaper. What you do see is just how each person has now made up his own mind as to how he or she should be living their lives. I don't think they would have got any further, whoever they would have asked. You've got a guy named Feinstein. And the way these names are written is also very much with the Yiddish spelling. European. Right. But secular Yiddish spellings. So he explains that he and his free-thinking young wife got married, and they were fervent socialists. And because of that, they had the strength to resist their orthodox parents' pleas to get married in a shul. And a few years later... They have a boy. They had a baby boy. And this new mother, who is this socialist, right, she insists that her son has a bris and a pidyon aben. <laughs> and the devoted young husband acquiesced because, you know, and in fact, he, the way he wrote it is, is it the opinion of the organizer of this debate and his defenders 
that I have to leave my wife and child. And if not, I am a traitor to my free thinking ideals. So it's, you know, it's more nuanced. We see time and time again that the anti-Semitic Jews, for lack of a better way of putting it, can sometimes be so much more damaging than the non-Jewish anti-Semites. So you could have called that sort of 30% anti-Semitic, but the other 70% don't want to be religious, and they aren't, but they're still sort of living in two worlds. So they're not quite sure what to do. I mean, I remember in the Jaili, least 10 years ago, there was a, a woman who came in, must have been in her, at least in her 50s, and completely irreligious. In fact, she'd been brought up by a staunchly communist father in England with no practice at all. And naturally, she married out. I mean, you know, there was absolutely nothing tying her to Judaism whatsoever. And then what she said to me is, to her amazement, when she had her child, her first child, a boy, her father, this communist, atheist, irreligious, you know, whatever definition you want to give, said to her, obviously, you're going to give your child a bris. And she was so shocked by the request because she couldn't understand where it was coming from. And she didn't. She didn't give her child a bris. But her father was one generation closer to where it had all come from. And you can't shake loose of it overnight. Yeah. Now, actually, these debates, the two that we've just mentioned, gave way to a sort of, I guess you could call it an agony aunt type of column called Bintel Briefs. Brief yeah. means a letter, and a Bintel means a, a bunch of letters. And what happened is there ended up being a bunch of letters that had been sent to the forwards, and they didn't know in which column or under what heading to print them. And so they were given their own existence. And they were written by these newly arrived Eastern Europeans during 1906, there were probably as many as 150 letters a week arriving, over half of them from women. Often the writers were young. They were obviously working class, Yiddish writing. But because it was in Yiddish, they were uncaring about non-Jewish views. They wanted a Jewish view from a socialist newspaper as to what they should do. <laughs> and especially the female readers, they looked at this Yiddish newspaper as a uh, sort of, uh, it combined the, the impersonality of a stranger, because it was anonymous, with the reliability of, you know, somebody to whom you're related. And so there was little that was too intimate to be discussed or to depend on the, the answers. And not just for the news, but for guidance in their period of initial adjustment in the new world. They'd, they'd come from close-knit, primarily Jewish shtetl in old Russia, and now they're in an industrialized, primarily non-Jewish world. And especially the women, they just needed somebody to turn to. They, they came to a country that was seething with activity. And so, as they put it, they make a living, but they're lonely. And these letters describe all the conditions. Some of them are quite harrowing. The poverty, the unemployment, husbands in sweatshops who develop tuberculosis, despairing uh, wives who are abandoned with no means of support. And the women sometimes appealed directly to their husband through the, the Bintel brief with all sorts of names included. There's one, uh, I'll quote you, Max, the children and I now say farewell to you. 
you had no compassion for us. I bore you four children. Of those four, only two remain, but you have made them living orphans. Be advised that in several days I am leaving back with my two children to Russia. We beg you to take pity on us and send us enough to live on. My address in Russia will be, and you've got the woman's name and address, and uh, signed your deserted wife and children. It's mind-blowing. It was quite recent. It was only a hundred and something years ago, yep. and it's difficult to understand the helplessness to this level. Yeah, it's not something that we visualize or generally are aware of. Now, the, these Bintel briefs also contained all sorts of things. You know, how do you wear makeup? Because, uh, you know, who they're going to ask. And so it was the first Nashe forum of some right. sort. <laughs> there were also very uniquely sort of cute Jewish references to events. So, you know, when the Wright brothers, they, they carried out four flights on December 17th in 1903. This is recorded in the newspaper, in the Jewish newspaper, as happening on the third day of Hanukkah, because you're not going to forget such a thing easily. And, Almost a nest Hanukkah for them. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> and uh, this Kahan, who was the main editor and his sub-editors, they weren't afraid of, you know, going for the jugular, especially when it came to what they sort of saw as old world superstitions. As one letter that I'm going to quote, uh, Dear Editor, I'm a young man of 25 and I recently met a fine girl. She has a flaw, however a dimple in her chin. <laughs> it is said that people who have this lose their first husband or wife. I love her very much, but I'm afraid to marry her in case I die because of the dimple. <laughs> to which the forwards wrote back, the tragedy is not that the girl has a dimple in her chin, but that some people have a screw loose in their heads. <laughs> so it's a fellow with a good humour who was uh, writing. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of these answers are very, very sweet. So basically, to summarise all you've said above, there were enormous adjustments to make life regular in America, America. was mad. On, on every level. I mean, we think and know of finance and religion, but it was an alien world, the way that the place was built up, the language, the culture. Having said that, the first generation still did something that was unbelievably Jewish, and that is they lived for their children. Every penny that they saved went to the next generation. There's never been as much input, serious nefesh, into kids who unfortunately often repaid it by turning their backs in embarrassment on their Yiddish-speaking old-fashioned parents. Because even if these parents weren't religious, they were still doing things the old way. You know, a shidduch, that's how you met, that's how you got married. There's a journalist, Zalman Yaffa, who recalls that on one dollar a day, his mother fed and clothed them all. She made all their clothes by hand. She walked everywhere and her hands became hardened and one by one she lost her teeth. But she made sure that there was always bread and butter in the house and that they always were clothed. And therefore, it's not surprising that by 1918 in New York, uh, in medicine and law, the proportion of Jews was double that of non-Jews. Although there were large segments of the American economy that remained closed to the Jews, uh, you know, corporations, banks, kept Jews out of the important managerial posts. A company like the New York Telephone Company had clear policies of discrimination. 
law firms, uh, Ivy League universities, they had quotas. It would really take until the third generation until the Jews were at home. But it was, yeah, quite the adjustment. Wow. I guess that brings this episode to an end. Next week is the last in the series, I believe. Yes. We will deal with one of the most astonishing pieces of, I guess you could call it, legislation, the passport. And then we will do a new series, three parts, on political intrigues, one in Paris, one in Ancona in Italy, and one in London. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. Thank you. Another fascinating episode. Looking forward to next week's and following the new series. As always, any comments or feedback, please do send to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening. <laughs>